it's a great honor to be here and to, to be able to participate in this conference again. And I want to thank, in addition to, to Chancellor Perlman, President uh, J.B. Milliken, and the rest of the University of Nebraska staff. It's been a great pleasure and a great honor for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to have this opportunity to work with the University of Nebraska and the Doherty Water for Food Institute. This is an incredibly important issue, and I'm, I'm very appreciative of you all attending this conference here today and, and being a part of this discussion. I also want to join in thanking the Global Harvest Initiative for hosting this panel. As you're about to hear, I think the, the, there needs to be a sense of urgency and I think there needs to be a sense of collaborative effort in order to take on these tough challenges. And the fact that the Global Harvest uh, initiative is bringing together leaders uh, across the, the private sector to work with the public sector, academia, uh, and philanthropy is a, a, a very important signal of what I think, or a very important indicator of what I think is going to be important to take on these challenges. And what is the big challenge as, as we see it? Certainly, uh, I think we're all aware that by 2050, the population is expected to increase to over 9 billion. In other words, about a 40% increase from where we are today. And with the evolution in diets, the expectation is the demand for food is going to double. So the key problem that I think we're all here to discuss is how are we going to be able to, to feed these people? And in the context of the water, uh, challenges that we have to consider in order to be able to feed this growing population. Agriculture uses about 70% of the world's freshwater withdrawals for irrigation, and 60% of the food supply is produced by rain-fed agriculture. Uh, that's a particularly important issue for us at the Gates Foundation because a lot of our work is in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. In Sub-Saharan Africa, 95% of agriculture is rain-fed. So these issues of, of, of how you uh, uh, deliver the food supply in the context of 60% of, uh, produced by rain-fed agriculture is particularly important. And of course, we know that there's competition for water. There's a growing or expanding urban population, and climate change holds uh, some, some challenges that we can't fully predict at this point in time. Now, while water is a challenge for the entire world, one of the key points I want to make to all of you is it's going to be felt most acutely by the world's poorest farming families. There are roughly 1.2, 1.3 billion people in the world who live in extreme poverty. The definition is those who live on a dollar or less per day. 70 to 75% of those uh, uh, families live uh, in rural areas. In other words, they're dependent on subsistence agriculture. We're here near the University of Nebraska's uh, uh, Memorial Stadium. Most of these farmers are producing their food on land that is the equivalent of about the size of a football field or smaller. And that's how they're feeding a, a family of six or eight uh, family members oftentimes. One of the important points that we like to make at the Gates Foundation is that helping these farm families be able to feed themselves not only results in food security, but then with productivity increases, the opportunity for them to have enough additional income through a little bit of surplus to be able to feed their, uh, not only feed their families, but be able to educate their children, uh, provide for 
for uh, improved health care. And this is part of the fun in my work, traveling around the world and seeing how these productivity improvements can make a difference uh, for these people. In the context of considering these challenges, I want to emphasize that agriculture and water are inseparable. And so making water the key uh, to fighting poverty, improving the, world's, the lives of the world's poorest is a particularly important issue that I think we all need to consider. Some, of, some folks will dis describe all of these challenges that I'm, I'm uh, mentioning as a crisis. I think we also need to look at it as an opportunity, an opportunity to come together and, and really work in new ways, new collaborations that will produce new innovations and new approaches. Because I think we've oftentimes see the collective effort can have the power to help hundreds of millions of people move from extreme poverty. As I set up this panel, one of the key points I want to make is uh, one that I often describe as the three-legged stool. At the Gates Foundation, we're big believers in the impact that, that the private sector can have. You know, the history of capitalism really has produced an efficient allocation of resources in society to produce goods and services, and we think that's a very important part of the overall system. It works particularly well when there's a market opportunity where a uh, capitalist can take risk and make a real difference uh, uh, in order to produce a, a profit. It does not work well when there's a market failure. There's no sense of market opportunity. The public sector also plays an important role and is part of this three-legged stool. Uh, public sector, governments produce great goods and services to help improve the quality of life in society, but there's not a tendency to want to take risk. It's your tax dollars. And so you have this interesting situation where you have the risk takers, where there's a market opportunity. You have the less uh, inclined to risk taking, but an important sector. So what's the role at the Gates Foundation and other uh, philanthropies? We believe in what we call catalytic philanthropy. We believe in identifying those areas of market failure trying to figure out what are the right kinds of investments that we might be able to make, what kind of, of innovative interventions could be uh, undertaken. Maybe it's a meningitis A vaccine for the poor families in sub-Saharan Africa that are afflicted with, with meningitis A. Or perhaps it's working in uh, uh, financial uh, services for the poor, being able to use underlying uh, technology of mobile phones, agent banking, to revolutionize uh, or transform the underlying cost structure so that you can create a safe place to save for poor people. So the opportunity to invest in innovative interventions can then be scaled up and sustained by the private sector and public sector, and that's the role that we see us playing. But it means working very effectively across sectors. It means working with the private sector and the, the public sector. And we see the private sector is a very important driver of economic growth and a source uh, of in innovation. And so that's the kind of partnerships that we see as important to taking on these challenges that, that uh, I was describing. What I'd like to do now is to really get into the meat of the panel, and I'm going to invite the panelists to come up on, on stage, and they're going to introduce themselves, their companies, and the role that they play. As I do that, I want to emphasize that we want this to be a dialogue that not only includes the panelists, 
but includes you. We want to make sure that we have plenty of time for you to ask your questions, make your comments. Uh, I'm going to uh, try and make sure that we get to a good 20 to 30 minutes or more of, of dialogue with you. So be think, thinking about those kinds of questions that, that uh, you want to ask of these, these panelists. And it is quite a, a distinguished panel. Uh, I'm going to start with, with uh, Natalie and ask her to introduce herself and the role that uh, uh, she plays at Monsanto and how she sees this issue and her company sees this issue of, of growing more food in the, con the context of the constraints that we see on water for food. Natalie. Okay. Good morning, everyone, and thank you very much for the chance to be here today. Thanks to the university and all, all the institutions and people involved in organizing this conference. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I think most folks are probably somewhat familiar with Monsanto. Uh, we're a company that's focused exclusively on agriculture, so very focused on farmers, uh, the products and the tools and the kind of information they need to be successful. And for a number of years now, we've also been very focused on global challenges, including the kind that are being discussed in this conference around water for food, for instance. And um, we've asked ourselves, what is the role that we should be playing to try to contribute to how our farmer customers can address these sort of global challenges? And we've made some specific commitments in that area. First, uh, we're working to help farmers produce more. And we've made a commitment to help double yields in corn, cotton, soybeans, and canola by the year 2030 from year 2000 levels. At the same time we want to help farmers produce more, we want to help them conserve more resources. So we've made a commitment to help them um, use a third less resources per unit of production. And last, we really want to help improve lives of the farmers, their families, the communities that they serve. Because all of the work that we do in the laboratory or the field really won't make any impact unless it's actually used by a farmer. And it won't be used by a farmer unless it's bringing them economic value in the near and the long term. So really producing more, conserving more, improving lives. This is our definition of sustainable agriculture. We've made uh, these commitments to ourselves. We're, we're accountable to them. We're monitoring our progress against them and reporting on that, which you can follow if you are interested. Um, and that's really about increasing yield, but ultimately it's about increasing water productivity as I think about it. And, and our way of doing that, we think, is really through a systems-based approach. We're, we're essentially a seed company. So we focus a lot, invest a lot on breeding so that we can try to really increase the yield potential of any crop including drought tolerance in that crop, um, water use efficiency in that crop. A second pillar of that system is biotechnology traits, which largely are to help protect that yield potential, whether it be um, weed control, insect protection on the horizon, more uh, drought tolerance through a collaboration we have with BASF. The idea here is really combining biotech and breeding, and then the third piece of it being agronomics and the management practices the farmer uses. We really think the systems approach is essential, especially for a challenge as serious and complex as water use efficiency and drought. And um, I guess I think that you know, a systems-based approach seems pretty intuitive because this is what farmers have to deal with every day. They're dealing with the system. But for a product development, product-driven company, it's actually a bit of a shift in thinking. 
And so we have a lot of work going on and some specific initiatives here in the Great Plains of the US um, that around systems-based approaches that I hope to talk with you about today. But my role in the company, coming to that piece of it, is I lead our area of sustainable agriculture partnerships, particularly focused on smallholder farmers and uh, in developing countries and improving their productivity. So I'm thrilled and really excited that this conference has uh, a focus on that international aspect as well. Um, and um, building on some of the work that, the comments that Jeff made, I couldn't agree more with the things he's mentioned. Um, we have the privilege of being a part of, I think, the catalytic kind of philanthropy that the uh, foundation works on through a specific project called Water Efficient Maze for Africa that I hope to talk with you more about today. But I also wanted to mention, um, I don't know if folks were, anybody followed the G8 conference that took place the other a uh, couple weeks ago, but I really think we're at a moment in time right now where um, the public and the private sector have a chance to work together to make some real impacts on productivity in, in developing countries, particularly Africa, and water productivity as well. So thanks very much for the chance to be here. Great. Natalie, thank you very much. Graham. <coughs> Hopefully my mic, uh, there it goes. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'd just like to begin by thanking Chancellor Perlman, uh, the University of Nebraska, Jeff Rakes and the Global Harvest Initiative uh, members for their leadership in hosting this event. I'd also like to thank guests and attendees, especially those that have traveled great distances to be here for this conference. So good morning. My role over the last four years has been uh, a leadership role within a new entity in John Deere called John Deere Water. And I've helped to put together the charter companies that we've acquired, integrated, and now assimilated to Deere & Company, as most of you know. Um, I'm currently involved in a new endeavor, which is to address tropical agriculture. And Deere is looking to put centers around the globe that look four to five years and beyond in order to understand emerging needs, emerging trends, and actually um, develop a systems-based approach to pulling together solutions that can drive productivity, um, increase supply to meet the, meet the demand, the projected demand as we move to 2050. If you look at Deere's uh, portfolio, we're in our 175th year of operation. We're celebrating that anniversary this year. And we do, we've been able to do this because of the fact that we seek to serve those around the globe with solutions, technology, and equipment, regardless of their income level. So we have solutions that can address smallholder in India, sub-Saharan Africa, parts of Asia, for example, all the way to sophisticated equipment that you typically would see here in the Midwest. Large equipment, technology-centric equipment, information management around that platform. When you, when you look at how we can address the demand need moving to 2050, there are typically three levers that are universally acknowledged as helping us get there. They're mechanization, genetics, and irrigation. And if you put yourself in the shoes of a grower, a farmer, you don't look at them as point solutions. You don't look at a tractor or the seed or irrigation equipment. You're trying to put the whole system together. And so I think one of the things I'd like you to leave with is 
How can we look at leveraging point solutions from various companies and providers and universities in this country and around the world to bring a system-centric solution to bear? Because that's where a lot of the latent potential exists already today. And I think from the panel, you're going to see discussion in those three, uh, in that triad, uh, over the next hour or so. So thank you. Great. Graham, thank you very much. Claudia. Good morning, everyone. My name is Claudia Garcia, and I am from Mexico. That's why I have an accent. I uh, was born and raised in Mexico City, and I learned about farming and the importance of animals with a farm that my family had in the coast of Mexico. So I do understand well what it is to live in a city and uh, get to know a farm uh, closely. We heard that today. Uh, more people live with food insecurity every day. Uh, it's not only the people in develop developing countries, but also here in the U.S. too. Uh, meat, milk, and eggs will provide 50% of the protein that uh, developing countries will need, and it's about 30% of developed countries. Uh, as far as I noticed, most of us were eating eggs this morning, and we need to secure that animal protein is uh, a choice that we have in the food that we have for our families and for our children. Uh, every month, there's about 4.4 million people added. It's about the, uh, four times the city of Indianapolis where I live added every month new people that will need to eat and have access to uh, protein. So one in six people will not have enough to eat. And uh, in Elanco, we're leaders in innovation, in technology that will secure the use of uh, technology to produce more food, safe, abundant, and affordable food for everyone. It is important because if you have a diet that is balanced, then you have more chances to be successful in life, but also you can fight disease. And that's very important when we think about all those people that will be added. Elanco works in technology that goes across the food chain. We will have solutions for people that are considering organic production, as well as those farmers that are small in scale, or those that are big and integrated, those that are in China, in Mexico, in Brazil, here in the US. We are in the people business, though. We also provide solutions to help them secure the efficiency and productivity they need for the future. So it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here and to be part of this uh, panel. My first time in Nebraska. Thank you. <laughs> very good. We're glad to have you here, Claudia. Thank you very much. John, please. Yeah, thanks again for having me as well. And uh, I want to thank uh, Ch Chancellor Perlman and University of Nebraska and also the Global Harvest Initiative for sponsoring this particular event. I was trained as a plant breeder, and so my whole life has been about using genetic solutions to improve productivity for farmers. I started off as a soybean breeder in Minnesota for seven years. I had a chance to work in sunflower research across the world in lots of different geographies of Europe and Asia and Latin America. And most recently, uh, have been promoted to vice president of crop genetics research and development at Pioneer, which is uh, basically, my, my role is I have overall responsibilities for the plant breeding operations around the world. So I have lot, lots of opportunities to travel the world and to see agriculture from a lot of different perspectives. 
And as you, as you think about the challenges that growers face, not only here in the U.S., but around the world and even the small landholders, uh, certainly water is a key factor. As we look out into the future with the uh, perspectives for global climate change and higher temperatures and shifts in water patterns and more, uh, more diverse and, and tumultuous uh, environments, water, again, is, is a really key issue. Now, Pioneer has been working on drought tolerance for a lot of years. In fact, uh, the first efforts in drought tolerance were established uh, here in Nebraska, in York, Nebraska, back in 1957. And we established a, a corn research center here and the primary goal of that research center was to work on drought tolerance. Our leader at that time, a gentleman named Raymond Baker, uh, came out to meet with the young scientist he just hired for that research center, and he, and he told the guy, I hope you have the courage to turn that water off in July, because we really need to understand how our products perform under dry conditions that some of our, our farmers are facing. So that really began the, the drought breeding efforts of Pioneer. And we've been able to develop a leadership position for drought-tolerant hybrids in the western U.S. In the past decade, a lot of things have changed, and we put a, a re renewed emphasis on water and on drought tolerance. We've established, in some of the driest places on the planet, uh, specific breeding nurseries where we evaluate uh, the genetics that we have for their ability to deliver drought tolerance. We're looking both at native genes that exist in the germplasm that we work with today and also looking at biotechnology solutions. So those nurseries are in places like western Nebraska, in Texas, in California, and Santiago, Chile. We're also now expanding that intense focus on drought to other parts of the world, into Europe, into Asia, and into Africa. Another a great technology that is helping us in this battle is what we call accelerated yield technologies. It's basically a set of molecular marker technologies which are allowing our scientists to identify the genetics behind those drought tolerance traits. Uh, the great thing about marker technologies is that they're not GMO. So you don't have the issues of putting it through a regulatory process so you can bring it to market quicker. And um, it, it just allows you to top, tap, tap a lot of uh, native germplasm. We brought together our first set of, of, of new products that we have uh, marketed as Aquamax. And those are products that have been developed using these marker technologies for improved drought tolerance across the western U.S. last year. And they provided some great benefits for growers uh, with 6 or 7% yield advantage in, in drought environments. And we're extending that same technology around into the other markets. Certainly, uh, areas like Asia and Africa and small farmers present a lot of unique issues. Uh, this, this more than just genetics. A lot of those countries have challenges that go beyond genetics. It, it goes to uh, having financing for inputs. And it, and it goes to not having adequate extension services to really teach farmers how to utilize the technologies that we bring to them. So we're engaged in those sort of activities as well. It's great to have a conference with a lot of people from different backgrounds, and I think one of the greatest opportunities of a conference is to share ideas across uh, different sectors, because we all have different perspectives. 
And in, in that vein, we also work with a number of, of groups and collaborations, uh, NGOs and governments to help focus on this, these water issues. Uh, we're working with the Gates Foundation on projects in Africa. Uh, we're serving on initiatives set up by CIMIT to improve tolerance for drought in maize in, in Africa. Uh, we're working also with some U.S. foundations to work on water quality issues around rivers. And I, I think this is uh, one of the things that we can do during this conference is really interconnect with each other and again think about a system solution where we bring all the great ideas together to solve our issues. And I think if we do that, uh, we can resolve the issues of, of improving productivity to continue to feed the growing world population. Thanks. Great. Well, thank you very much, John, and thanks to all the panelists for those introductions of, of themselves and their, their companies and their interest in this topic. Uh, Natalie, I'm going to start with you. One of the things that you reflected upon in your opening comments was the the ability to work across sectors, the role of the private sector, the relationship to catalytic philanthropy. I wonder if you could expand on that a bit and share your thoughts on what is the role of the private sector in working broadly on this, this issue. How do you frame it? Um, you can take it from two different angles. So first, um, I'll start with sort of the macro angle, which I think is part of what we saw in that G8 event a couple of weeks ago. Um, 45 companies around the world, including others on this panel, some others on this panel, made investment commitments in sub-Saharan Africa over the next decade to improve agricultural productivity. Um, just as John said, the challenges for agricultural productivity in, in many parts of the world, particularly in Africa, um, Seed is an, is an essential piece of it. Good seed is essential, but it's not sufficient. You really need to be thinking holistically about all of the challenges around it. Um, and I think it was really exciting when we look at what happened in that event that we had the public and the private sector coming together in a way that I really haven't seen before, where they weren't focusing so much on the problem, they were trying to focus on solutions. They weren't focusing so much on what the other camp needs to do, they were asking themselves, what do I need to do? So we saw governments saying, what kind of policies do I need to be putting in place so that the private sector can come in and invest? And we saw the private sector saying, what kind of risk can I actually take on that I might not normally take on? Because this is really a pretty amazing opportunity if we can get markets working there. And it's a really important part of us being a global citizen. So I think it's a really exciting kind of momentum. And one of the um, reports that Global Harvest Initiative has done has actually shown the importance of uh, private sector investment in order to really fill the investment gap that's going to be needed to get increased productivity in that part of the world. The other part I want to talk about though is more specific type of initiative and that would be um, the water efficient Maze for Africa project I mentioned earlier. This is a project that's a public-private partnership that's being led by the African Agricultural Technology Foundation they're an NGO based in Kenya, focused on trying to bring smallholder farmers the tools they need in Africa. They did an assessment of the greatest challenges facing those farmers in the next decade, and as you can imagine, drought was quite high on the list. And so this partnership was formed um, really to try to give these farmers more yield stability during drought years. One of the things I've come to learn through the project is that drought hits the continent every year somewhere you can count on it. 
But there's very severe droughts that happen about every eight years or so, although some people say that's even increasing. What I've really learned is that because these farmers, while they might not have a lot of resources, they're very resourceful people and very smart business people. They want to make good choices when they can, but they have to be very risk averse. And so even though they know very basic inputs we've been using in this country for decades, things like hybrid seed and fertilizer, they know can double, triple, even more than that their yields, uh, they, they hesitate to buy those because they're concerned about losing their investment to a drought. So this project's really about trying to give them more yield stability so that they can make those, those, great, those basic input investments. It's trying to get away from this sense, I realize, that the drought hits these farmers even when it doesn't come because of this risk-averse attitude that they, they have to have, very, very risk-averse attitude. So um, the partnership includes CIMIT, which, which many of you are probably familiar with, a preeminent research institution with drought breeding experience in Africa for many years. It includes five African governments. Uh, Kenya, Uganda, Mozambique, Tanzania, and South Africa with their own scientists from their own national research, agriculture research services doing a lot of this actual work. Um, Monsanto has donated hundreds of lines from our proprietary germplasm, really looking to try to bring some of the drought tolerance from other parts of the world into, the, into African germplasm pools. Um, and our molecular breeding capability and transgenes from our drought tolerance uh, transgenic program. And really what we're trying to do here um, through this African-led type project, like I said, is to give these farmers more yield stability in white maize. It's been a real privilege to be part of it. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Howard Buffett Foundation are funding a lot of this R&D work. And in that way, I see it as sort of that catalytic philanthropy. The idea behind it is all of the the R&D essentially that's been donated into the, is donated into the project royalty free. And at the end of it, these WEMA varieties as they're called, will be available to any seed company in Africa. So really what the partners are trying to accomplish here is not just benefit the farmer and give the farmer more robust products, but really develop a more robust seed system. And I think that's really what any of us on the panel would tell you we're looking for in, in a place like Sub-Saharan Africa is a robust uh, agricultural system and a competitive marketplace where we can compete to earn the business of the, of the farmers there. Great, thanks very much. I'm gonna come back to that uh, last thread in a uh, minute to, to have you expand on both your interest in, in small farmers, the, the farmers in the poorer parts of the world and then also intellectual property. But before I do that, Natalie, you also mentioned the, the Global Harvest Initiative. And I wonder, Claudia, uh, you're a board member of the initiative. I wonder if you could share for the audience a little bit about the intent of the Global Harvest Initiative. It's focused in on productivity improvements and, and how you think that contributes to us taking on these challenges. Um, yes, Elanco joined uh, the Global Harvest Initiative this year. It's uh, formed by companies that are committed to food security and working and helping with productivity and efficiency. All of you have the report on the table. Um, you can take a copy and look at it. What uh, we really like about the report is that it's a collaborative uh, effort to show what we need to do to get there. It's easy to talk about the problem 
2050, we need more, but how are we measuring the increments that we have to get in animal production or uh, farm production or grain production is very important. It's done, it's calculated in here with an index so we can have the right metrics to know if we're advancing or not in specific areas, in, in specific um, countries. In this report, you will also find uh, water, where water is avail available, how different countries use that water. Some uh, countries use more for agriculture versus uh, their own needs for human consumption. So it's important to have that index in perspective. Uh, this year, we're going to add the animal production perspective. So it's going to help us understand how many more animals we need to add or reduce if we want to keep animal protein diets in developed and developing countries. So I will encourage you to take a look of the report. It's, uh, it's scientific in the approach. It's um, very neutral. And it's trying to move away from this self-destructive debate it's trying to bring a solution uh, from, uh, from the companies that are members of the Global Harvest Initiative. So take a look and give us, uh, give us feedback. It's always uh, important. Great, thanks very much. And one of the things that you mentioned that I'll come back to in a moment is um, the choices of food production and food consumption and, and how that'll fit into society. But before I do that, Graham, I want to bring you in. One of the things that I think was interesting to me when I was chatting with you uh, before the conference was the, the, you know, people will think of John Deere as, you know, being about equipment, but you talked about the importance of a combination of mechanization, irrigation, genetics, and an innovative approach you have called FarmSight. And I wonder if you'd share for, with the audience a little bit about FarmSight. Sure. Um, so <clears throat> there, there's a, a strategy within John Deere, we call it John Deere Farm Site, that applies to the agricultural space. And there are three pillars associated with enabling this strategy. Um, the first is optimizing the mechanized side. Then there's logistics op optimization. And then the third pillar is agronomic decision support. So, if, if you look at it in context of a grower, a grower has various equipment with certain feeds and speeds, certain attributes, certain quantity, and they've got their farm. You know, polygons here and there around their, um, uh, their, their farming area. What becomes evident is in order to manage a large operation or even a small operation is what is the base information that I'm working from in terms of what did I do today? What were the results I, um, I yielded at the end of the season, mid-season? And then how do I better myself for season two, season three? And so on, on our equipment, we've got a lot of technology that can determine um, seeding rates, seeding depth, um, yield monitors, etc. On the agronomic side, um, we have solutions that can help ascertain uh, the volumetric moisture level within the root profile of a crop. So why is that important? If you're putting seed into a seeder and you're rolling across the field and you've got a certain seeding rate with a genetic uh, product and you've got a certain seeding depth, when should you go and seed? What's the soil temperature? 
what, what rate should I apply? There's all these field readiness types of issues that one has to go through to, to get to the logistics side of how to get out into my farm area and, and, and start the machine, so to speak, start production. Temporally across the growing season, you're looking to do the right thing for the crop type you've planted um, at key bigger stages of that crop. So irrigating is one of the biggest, if not the biggest. And so how much should you irrigate? Where do you irrigate on your field? And when do you irrigate? Those are typically the three big questions one's trying to ask. And so if you've got a system that can convey the volumetric water content, soil temperature, and other environmental parameters via the web, have it database so that you can see it on a handheld device and then make in-field decisions, you can now start to do the right amount at the right time in the right place in your field. At the end of the year, you get all this empirical data. What worked, what did not work. And so I think what you'll start to see, uh, not only from John Deere, but other companies globally, is this, um, this interest in more of the information associated with the farm productivity system. Where are the causes and effects that drive productivity? How do you do more of those quickly? And then what are the trends that agronomists, plant physiologists, and others in the ecosystem can bring to bear to step it to the next level? So I would encourage you to embrace the fact that a lot of information is going to be generated on the farm, much more so than there is today, but it'll be captured in a way that should be easy to use and easy to manage going forward. And, and this will really be um, a big advance in terms of driving productivity, uh, not only here in the developed world, but elsewhere. Great. Thanks very much. John, one of the things that, that I find interesting, uh, and we're very appreciative at the Gates Foundation and the ability to work with, with major uh, uh, innovators in agriculture, uh, for commercial agriculture. But I find it interesting that you, you seem to want to work with us on the small farmers living in the developing world. And why would that be? What is it that that uh, brings you to these, these issues? Well, I think a lot of people assume that large companies don't work with small farmers, and it's uh, simply not true. Uh, we have, for example, more than two million customers in India. Uh, we have five million customers in China, and we're now growing our African business as well and, and hoping to reach out to more, more small landholders throughout Eastern Africa and then ultimately in the Sub-Saharan Africa as well. Uh, the reason that we're interested is because these are potential customers and they can benefit from our technologies. Again, we have to deliver more than just a seed. We have to deliver support systems so they can apply the necessary fertilizers and fungicides and herbicides. Well, not, maybe not herbicides, they'll, they'll hand weed those, but uh, fungicides and, and uh, fertilizers to to get the uh, maximum productivity out of those crops. So it's a, it is a business opportunity for us, and that's why we're interested in doing it. I think also if you look at what drives our company employees, uh, particularly our research employees, it's not only the mission of making sure that our business is successful, but it is this mission of making sure the world gets fed. And if you look at 
the distribution of hectares around the world, there are a lot of hectares that are in the hands of these small landholders. I think it's imperative that the productivity of those small landholders rises if we're going to meet and reach that, the challenge that we have in front of us. So that's, uh, that's really our interest in, in working with small landholders. Right. Now, as the panelists know, I asked them if I could be a little provocative uh, and maybe toss out some of the tough, tough questions and, and some of the tough questions I get. Uh, uh, sometimes I'm called on to defend our relationships uh, at the Gates Foundation with, with uh, a variety of companies in the, the private sector. So I want to follow up on, on this last point about the interest in, in small farmers in the developing world. One of the, in, and maybe Natalie, you can be uh, open up and expose the Machiavellian plot that is, is underway. You know, I will get the challenge that, you know, really there isn't an interest in, in these, these small farmer, the, the welfare of these small farm families. What we're really doing is somehow trying to get them addicted to technologies or inputs that they really can't afford, that will undermine sustainable agriculture, so on and so forth. How do you, you uh, take on that, that issue? Expose the plot for us. <laughs> well, um, I, I'm, I was very moved in this when I um, spent, I spent a fair bit of time in Africa, not a lot, but I try to get there at least a few times a year and visit always with the farmers who oftentimes are women. And there was a woman farmer once who was probably in her 60s. She was farming a garden, as she calls it, that was less than half the size of this room. And she was trying to support about eight children um, some were her own grandchildren, some were um, orphans of neighbors who had died of HIV, but she felt she was responsible for all of these children. And she basically had on this apron, and she took out the barely handful of seed that she had been given um, by an organization to plant for her next season's crop that was very poor quality seed. She knew that it was. She knew it wasn't going to yield anything close to what her family needed, she felt like she had no choices. She felt like she just had no choice. And it really struck me how important it is for us to always ensure that farmers have choices. Even if they don't have a lot of money, they want to have choices and they want to have um, ways of bettering their lives that are going to be sustainable into the future. And so I've been really um, well-received by farmers in many places who are really excited to have um, companies come to them and see them as, as a potential customer and a business opportunity and wanting to earn their business, like I was saying before. And they're really interested in figuring out how do we break this cycle so that they can get to that point that they're actually becoming a customer and they have all those kind of choices. We try to be mindful or thoughtful even if we're participating in something like a voucher program, where the farmer's gonna get a coupon to, to essentially access the seed they want to, they, they better seed. We try to be really mindful of doing that through the market that currently exists. If there's a, a stockist or a seed dealer there who has a small shop, we don't wanna be in a situation where we're donating seed and undercutting that person's business. We really want 
the farmer to have this voucher where they can take it to that stockist and have a choice of what kind of seed they want to choose. And what we found is that they overwhelmingly want to choose hybrid seed. Um, so I think we, we try our best to be very mindful of that. I think there's also a really refreshing uh, trend going on right now, kind of getting back to what we saw in that conference a couple weeks ago with the G8, where there's a real recognition, I think, that neither the public or the private sector can do this alone. There, there sort of seemed like there was a pendulum swinging back and forth. And now I think there's a real understanding, just to your points earlier, Jeff, that we really need the innovation of companies. Um, and we want them to be working with local institutions and local companies to try to um, provide farmers with that kind of choice. So that's some of the ways that we try to, to think about that. Um, and I think that I'm optimistic that going forward, we're going to see the public and the private sector really trying to work together for those more sustainable solutions, always keeping the farmer in the center and what the, the farmer's needs and the farmer's choices at the center. So your emphasis is on, on, on farmer choices and giving them the choice of different um, technological uh, or different inputs, some of which may have more advanced technology. I Claudia, I want to switch to a different type of choice that we discussed in preparing for the, the panel. Uh, one of the things that comes up is uh, what and potential emphasis on trying to change consumer demand. Uh, the concerns, as I mentioned, 40% increase in, in population, but 100% increase in food consumption, in part because of the shift in diets. And so some people in society will say, we should discourage the consumption of meat, meat products. And that's one of the issues I know you are thinking about and you're passionate about. So can you share your point of view and how you respond to those critics who would say, we should be trying to shape consumer demand away from protein, uh, animal-based protein? Absolutely. Um, choice is important. We're not trying to say that uh, People should not have access to whatever they want to get. If someone wants to buy uh, organic yogurt and can pay for that, that's great, and it should be done. But if you are living in Mexico, like my sister, and you make $7,000 per year, and you have $17 for a day to pay rent, school, and food, then we should not tell my sister that she needs to go and buy organic yogurt if she can't afford that. Let me use an example, a different example that, uh, that is pretty much simple for everyone to understand. I'm going to use the example of an egg. Uh, we know very well that we need to produce 100% more food, 70% has to come from technology. Well, let's look at eggs. Egg production has been declining since 2000 different situations in different countries. The reality is that we have less eggs available every year. Why is that important? Because if you think that we consume, in general, 174 eggs per year, uh, or about one egg per day that your kid will go to school, so you will remember, then if we, uh, if we continue with that trend of losing at least one egg uh, less in production, then we will not be able to supply enough eggs in 2020, 2030, 2050. 
today we can produce 174 eggs with about 6.5 billion hens. And if we continue that decline in terms of technology use or not being able to bring innovation that will help us keep the production or increase the production where it's needed, then we have to produce uh, for that same amount of eggs, we have to put 17 billion hens somewhere instead of the required number of hens that with the same trend will be 10 billion. So 7 billion more hens that have to put somewhere because we're moving away from technology and we are trying to force a choice in everyone, whatever you are and wherever you live. So um, the point is this, we have to be sure that people are allowed to be productive and efficient in whatever um, business model they're using, either if it's organic or small farm or a big integration, and we need to be sure that those decisions and choices are sustainable. Think about this, how much water and food and land will be required to host more hens, seven billion more hens. We are in Elanco uh, helping producers and helping governments make those determinations. So if you know your goal and you're a government, for example, and you know that you wanna produce X number of grams of calcium for your uh, people in China, or you know that you need to produce, wanna produce X number of kilos of milk, uh, in Argentina, for example, we can calculate how many animals you need to have and what production you're expecting to have. And hopefully that's what we're trending into, calculate how much water and land you will secure or need and what is the impact for you, for your people, for your government. Sustainability is quite important. And sometimes we make decisions based on a group of people uh, and we try to impose uh, in general. We don't believe that's right. For me, it's very personal. I can't tell my sister to go and buy something that she can't afford to. And uh, there's a lot of people here in the US that live on a $7,000 uh, salary per year. So think about that. And I, I bet you next time that you have an egg, you will think different about it. <laughs> Great, thanks very much. I want to uh, continue on with the, the uh, discussion of policy. Multiple of the panelists have mentioned the issues and the role of government, and that leads to the discussion of policy. Graham, I'm going to start with you, but I'm going to offer it to all of the panelists to share your um, insights on where you see good policy relative to water, uh, water management, water efficient usage, in the agricultural sector, and also where you see lack of policy or issues of, that concern you relative to, to water policy? Okay, thanks Jeff. This is, this is a big question, um, big discussion point. So may, maybe I can start by sort of citing some, some numerical um, data from the world, and that is um, I talked in my opening remarks about the three main levers associated with ag productivity being uh, mechanization, genetics, and irrigation. So if you look at the irrigation side, um, there are approximately 250 million hectares of land that are irrigated on the planet today. And about 180 million of those are in Asia. 
uh, about 25 million here in the U.S. Um, about 18% of the world's arable land is actually irrigated by some method. Gravity, uh, sprinkler, um, drip micro, precision irrigation. But that 18% throws off um, somewhere between um, 40 to 60% of crop and or cereal production. So in terms of having a huge lever, irrigation is certainly, is certainly one. In so saying, the application of those irrigation methodologies, the water used in them, is pretty inefficient relative to where it could be um, using some cap capabilities and technologies that exist in certain part of the world. So if they were brought to scale, um, the, glass, the glass is half full scenario actually gets even better. So now you get back to the question of um, water. Here in the Midwest, um, water's a big deal. Five years ago, if I talked to people about water rights, water pricing, um, there wasn't really much of a discussion. Today, there's a discussion going on because of the depletion of the Ogallala Aquifer and other water sources. Um, and if you're in the west of the U.S., in the um, Central Valley of California, you're dependent upon the annual snowfall for what you're going to put into production uh, the following season. So I think one of the big questions that's out there is water pricing. What should it be? If you're running a business and you're making bicycles, for example, you pay for raw material, power, water, you get a bill. But in many parts of the world, there's, no, there's not a bill associated with, the, with water itself. When we heard yesterday from the gentleman on increasing productivity associated with uh, soil moisture monitoring, for example, he cited a simple ROI which was comprised of lower energy costs to pump the water out, uh, less wear and tear on his equipment that applies the water, etc. But you don't hear about the water, the price of water actually being better because you're putting less on. So we, we at DEER, um, we look to provide solutions and information that help growers make better decisions given the local conditions where they farm. And I think a lot of um, what will be brought to bear is actually the information associated with how you can transition from today's practices and methodologies to those in the future that are more efficacious, that are better, and you get better water use efficiency. Um, but on the policy side, I think um, my, my suggestion is that there needs to be a longer term horizon so people in business can plan around it. If it's myopic and it's a knee-jerk reaction, that encumbers the entire system because people can't internalize it and plan accordingly. So I'm not going to comment on any water policy specific uh, topics. I would just like to ask the audience to leave with the open question on water pricing, water availability, and this discussion is going to um, become part of our lives moving forward. It already is in other parts of the world. Actually, let, let's do that. Let, I'm going to ask the audience, I'm going to do a little informal poll here. Essentially what Graham's pointing out is, is that there is this discussion underway about whether uh, one of the ways to more efficiently manage the water resource is to put an economic model around it where it is priced and as opposed to uh, maybe what we see in certain areas where there is no uh, pricing 
associated with, with water, other than, of course, the cost of extraction. So how many in the audience would believe that the, uh, or agree with the idea that governments should put in place policies that will create a, a market uh, or market forces and economic pricing for water? Okay, and how many would disagree with that? 50-50, I'd say. Right, it's, it's, it's right in the middle. Very, very interesting. Uh, the other panelists, do, do you want to chime in on the, the issues of water policy? John, Yeah, let me just make a couple of comments from the perspective of a sea company. Uh, we're probably not as in tune to actual water policy, but certainly to bring the sort of technologies that we bring uh, around the world, we need business environments that are going to support us. Uh, business environments that have regulatory systems that are science-based, uh, free trade so that if those small landholders now produce more grain than they can use themselves as they did when they were subsistence, that they have a way to move that grain into the markets that, that need those products. So those are a few of the things that, that we think about in terms of policy. Very good. Yeah, Natalie, please. Let's um, get, yeah, there you go. Thanks. Um, kind of back along the lines of um, some of these smallholder systems and some of the policies in place, um, I think there's beginning to be more understanding or recognition amongst some of those governments about what it means to have a business enabling environment. I actually think for we as companies, we need to do maybe a better job of helping to explain what that means. In some cases, it does mean certain kind of regulatory systems, but it also means basic rule of law, accountability, or a certainty that you're gonna that the rules that are here today are gonna be the same rules you're going to have tomorrow. Some sort of predictability about what the marketplace will look like. Um, that's really gonna be important. I think there's starting to be more recognition of those policy issues. Very good. This brings up a related topic. Um, you know. Natalie, you mentioned uh, what we sometimes call WEMA, the Water Efficient Mace for Africa Project. John, you mentioned um, the investments in intellectual property and, and the approaches that are taken. So I want to take on that next tough question that has to do with policy, and that's intellectual property rights. Uh, the, some would say that intellectual property rights, uh, in particular, uh, patents associated with advances in genetic technology are going to get in the way of providing appropriate access to these kinds of inputs for the people who, who really need them or especially people in the, in the developing world. So what do you think is the right balance? What's the right policy in terms of intellectual property rights encouraging innovation, but at the same time not preventing access. How do you strike the balance? John? I, I think from our perspective, uh, we would support uh, regulatory systems and, and uh, legal systems that support patents for technology advancements, because it really is what enables us to get a return on investment, which in turn uh, spurs company like like ours to make investments in certain technologies in certain geographic regions. And if you look around the world today where we're doing business and where we're not, a lot of those decisions really come back to the basic policies of those countries. And if there are countries that 
don't have intellectual property protection laws, or um, maybe the case of Argentina, they may have some laws, but the enforcement is not very strong, or, or in other countries there's a system and there's laws, but the court system takes 20 years to get you know, a, a court uh, trial date. Those are issues for us. And uh, so th those are challenging. I think if you look at some of the areas in Africa where we're not doing business today, it's because of those sort of things not being in place in addition to the, the instability of the government. And as you mentioned, uh, the instability of, of some of the laws that change from day to day, so. Yeah, Natalie, please. I think so. I've been working in this area of development for a few years, and in the beginning of my time starting to work on it, there were a lot of questions and conferences about intellectual property as the greatest barrier to diffusion of technology into developing countries. What are we going to do about that? How do we take away this barrier? And I think that um, over time, it's starting to shift a bit, and some of these um, stakeholders, and I'd say largely public institutions, many public institutions I've talked with, they don't see intellectual property as a barrier. They actually see um, regulatory frameworks or lack of science-based regulatory frameworks as a barrier. I think they see um, that lack of business-enabling environment that allows us to invest there and bring technologies as a greater barrier. And um, I think, too, in addition to just the ability to invest there. Most companies who have these innovative kind of technologies have, have technology sharing type programs associated with them. And so if we are asked by a public, public sector institution, for instance, to, to provide a technology, let's say it's insect protection, for a crop like cowpea, that's a really important protein source in Western Africa that we're never gonna be commercializing, those kind of technology transfer projects take place. And a bigger challenge to them succeeding tends to be either lack of funding or uh, just a challenge in the complexity of this kind of science that takes a lot of expertise and a lot of sustained kind of funding. Um, so, so I think the, it's, it's shifting a little bit of understanding that um, intellectual property can actually be, it, it is the way that it enables companies to be able to in, innovate. And if we can establish environments that allow us to bring those innovations to those other countries, we want to take those opportunities. Great. Thanks very much. I'm going to follow up on that in a moment, but I do want to encourage people now, if you'd like to, uh, audience, if the audience members would like to ask questions, I want to encourage you to go ahead, go to a microphone. I'll be looking for you. Uh, and uh, there's a microphone right back there. So people are lining up. Okay, we're going to get some audience participation. Why don't I just go ahead and go to this microphone over here. If you just say your, your name and, and affiliation and then ask your question, please. One, uh, I'm, I'm addressing the panel as a whole, but, but Graham made a very interesting comment that, you know, 18% of the world's agriculture is irrigated and they produce 40 plus percent of the food. And I'm, and I, but I understand fully that there's a lot of rain-fed agriculture in this, but I, I want to I try to understand better why irrigation isn't a bigger part of the solution. And by the way, I understand there are huge issues with it, and I really want to get some opinions. Is it 
that, that there's not enough water to actually use for irrigation? Is it too capital intensive? Uh, you know, farmers can't afford it, or should, should it be cheaper? Uh, is it complex, too complex, or does it require too much education? I want to kind of understand if, if it's such a great builder of yield, why isn't it more part of the solution? Great question. Thank you. Which, uh, Graham, did you want to take that one? Sure. Or? Maybe I'll start and, and, okay. and others can join in. Um, I, it's a great question, uh, Michael, right? Um, I think there are a number of reasons. Um, one, I think there's just the recognition that active irrigation can actually drive productivity. And I think a lot of data is now being brought to bear into the market where there are independent studies that validate this. So people are starting to assimilate this information. Um, if you look in some of the areas that are extremely productive, like Nebraska, which is a, a very active uh, irrigated state, California, uh, parts of Australia, um, India, even on a smallholder basis, uh, and in other markets, um, it's not as simple as just getting a piece of equipment and putting it out on the field and turning it on. There's really a, a, a systematic approach that needs to go through uh, the mind of the grower or the dealer or the ecosystem that's around that grower to put it into practice and realize the capabilities of what you've just put in uh, your field. So you need agronomics. You need some plant physiology involved. You don't have to have this natively on your farm. You can have trusted advisors, agronomists, maybe your, your dealer, they have these people. But you need to architect a system that goes around the soil type you have, the water source, the water quality. How are you going to run this um, from the water source to your field? So now you get into a whole host of engineering decisions. And you really design a system to optimize production on the land that you have. Once you've done that, then you see the benefit. To go through that entire process versus staying maybe with the capability you have in place today, that requires significant change. And so I think it's really, one, becoming aware that this is feasible and in place around the world today, but two, seeing that there's a return on investment for, from shifting from today's practice to, say, a more intelligent, active irrigated uh, practice. And as we all know, farmers are risk averse because if you deploy this on 100% of your property and it doesn't work, that's a huge challenge. So you're going to have incremental acreage applied to new capabilities, new genetics, whatever it happens to be, and then eventually you'll convert a significant part of your operation because you have faith in it. So I hope that helps answer your question. And, and Michael, from my perspective, spending a lot of time in Sub-Saharan Africa, you, you listed a number of issues, and I would have said all of the above. It, it is very challenging, yet I see uh, glimmers of hope. Uh, Trisha and I were in Ethiopia uh, oh, sometime in the last 12 to 18 months, and we were on a project with IDE, who is represented here at the, the conference, and we saw how catalytic philanthropy could bootstrap the production of small uh, pumps. Uh, so basically create a market opportunity for somebody to manufacture the pumps and then help farmers figure out how they could adopt the pumps in a way that would raise their yield so that they could actually afford to make the investment. But unless you have that sort of catalytic bootstrap, it's very difficult to do. So thank you very much. I'm going to go to this microphone over here and then Randy, I'll be back to you in a second. Please. 
I am Deepak Santra. I am a plant breeder with University of Nebraska located at Scotts Bluff. My question is very related, focusing on small farmers, small global farmers in rural area. When you talk about mechanization of the farming in US and in other parts of the globe is completely different. You just cannot pick up a half million dollar combined here and drop it there. Now, what are the strategies you are taking in order to adapt that small land? And what are the biggest hurdles you see? And what you foresee, the how long it will take to overcome those hurdles? That is one question. The second question is, if I you may talk, limit you to one question. <laughs> Go <okay>. ahead. <laughs> the second question is very related. Because okay. in that kind of small farm, like Natalie told, in Africa, half of the room, one lady is trying to support family of seven people, but not based on corn or soybean. Probably there are five different crops. How can you handle the crop diversity versus uh, mechanized agriculture? Great points, and if I could just paraphrase, I think there's both the question of what's the appropriate mechanization for, uh, or, or mechanized technology choices for smallholder uh, farmers. I remember being in Uganda and seeing two-wheel tractors that were being imported from, from China. Uh, and maybe there are other things that you're seeing. And then the, the other question I think is very important is the one of crop diversity. Uh, there's a great concern that US, the U.S. commercial agricultural model has gone to be very um, uh, homogenous. Uh, we've moved away from the diversity of, of, of crop patterns. That actually increases risk for the farmer. So I will turn it over to which, which of our panelists would like to address the gentleman's questions. John's going to start, please. So as, uh, it's true, uh, you, you have to approach the issue of the small farm landholder with his or her perspective to start. Um, you, you can't buy a big combine and drop it and expect it to be profitable on a one acre farm. But you can, you can work with the systems that they have today, many of which with very rudimentary changes can improve uh, productivity. For example, it's common practice in many parts of Sub-Saharan Africa to scatter the grain like you uh, scatter uh, feed to a chicken, right? Just kind of throw it out there. So to take them from that to the thought of, of putting in a row or of putting a couple seeds in a hill is a step change. And if you're able to deliver seed that actually germinates at 95% versus the seed they might have historically saved that germinates at 30%, you can talk them into not planting 10 seeds in a hill where the seedlings crowd each other out and you get spindly plants down to planting a single seed in a hill and you get a nice robust plant. And then managing the, the fertilization within the system that they have. I think the other thing that we see, particularly in, in Asia, is that a lot of those, they're small holders, but they, they operate in, on the village basis. So if you start now thinking about how could a village consolidate its one hectare plots into something a little bit larger, then you start thinking about, okay, now maybe I can get better productivity over the whole space if we introduce some small scale uh, mechanism, mechanization. So that would be my thought. Great. Okay, Natalie and then Graham, if you want to chime in. Just real quickly. Um, kind of building on what John just said, I, I think one of the main things I've learned, so I've been in working in development for enough years to know that I have a lot to learn, but 
one thing I feel really absolutely certain about is you really need to um, have locally based solutions and it's, you can't take a one-size-fits-all approach. And it's really important that you work with local organizations, including farmer groups, that really understand what's, what's possible and what works in their kind of situation. So we have had pro um, programs, for instance, in India. We have a project called Project Share, working with an, an Indian uh, NGO, farmer organization, and the government to enable farmers to access better seed and inputs, but also mechanization that fits for their situation. Um, and we've worked with um, organizations that do foot pumps, like you're saying, in Africa for certain kinds of you know, vegetable production and things. So it's really, I think, very important that you work uh, with local folks who understand what's possible for that particular situation. And, and if I could just quickly add to Deepak's uh, question. So for example, uh, in India, uh, we initiated John Deere Water India uh, approximately uh, three and a half, four years or so ago. And the economics associated with smallholder in India are obviously completely different than, for example, the Midwest US or uh, uh, EMEA. And so we've developed um, what we call kits, irrigation kits. They're gravity fed, basic technology, but they work. And they have a cost point or a price point that the market will support and they can, um, they can move up the, the productivity curve. So when we've gone into markets like this, we've recognized that you can't just copy and paste what may work here or elsewhere, one, just due to economics. Um, and because of the fact that we're a global company, we're now starting to leverage what we've developed in India to bring it into Sub-Saharan Africa for smallholder in Sub-Saharan Africa. There are nuances to Sub-Saharan Africa, but largely um, the, the, the mindset is similar to what we've already put into production and have commercialized in India. So, so yes, we do recognize those challenges and, um, uh, and manage them accordingly. Thank you. Great, thanks. Claude, if you have a quick ad, then I'll go to this microphone. Animal production and small farmers, we work with Heifer International that helps uh, develop um, small families or small uh, groups of people, small farmers, by starting the production of uh, animal production. We can um, sponsor and help to secure a cow or 10 chicken or llamas or whatever um, the specific country uh, requires. And it's, it's not our program. Elanco is um, a company that is helping Heifer International. And our employees actually donate um, every year, every month mm -hmm. to secure um, a cow or 10 chicken or three pigs in a specific area where they can learn how to raise animals. And we help with uh, the technical support, uh, teaching them how to do it, how to secure uh, health not having the animals, disease, etc. So you don't have to do it all by yourself in the company. You can help with um, other NGOs or the companies that are doing that, are bringing uh, production to those small farmers. Great, thanks very much. Randy. With the University of Nebraska. The, uh, I think there's an elephant in the room and uh, if we're successful, we'll you know, take the tusk off but we're still left with the elephant. And this has to do with our productivity achievements. And uh, we, we could end up like Professor Falkenberg said yesterday, we have nine billion people by 2050, and uh, six billion of them will be unemployed because 
we've become so efficient in providing that two to 3,000 calories. So I think that we have an obligation, both public and private uh, entities, to uh, parallel our efforts in education, because I believe that that's the only way that we'll be able to extract ourselves from the paradox that we face, that we're very successful in making people more productive, such as uh, Farmer Honeycutt from yesterday versus uh, uh, Mrs. Sharma from India on a small acreage. And uh, that is going to unemploy a lot of people unless we put efforts into education that uh, can help uh, replace their former employment. I, I think that's a great point, Randy, and one of the things that I feel like I've had the opportunity to experience in my travels in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia is that when farm families are able to have improvements in productivity, produce a little more, the first thing they invest in is the education of their children, and that's great to see. I'm going to go to this microphone, please. Well, my name is Chepelai. Um, I'm a graduate student in agricultural economics here in um, Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, my question is a little bit political. Uh, you just mentioned that um, about 45% of um, private companies committed to invest in Africa for the next uh, decade. And um, my question is, uh, you just mentioned how weak are the state, how hard it is uh, at this moment to enforce uh, property rights. And for that, you need strong, stable institutions for you to protect your business. What do you do to call for peace in Africa to get those strong institutions that will allow you to enforce property rights? Okay, so Natalie's going to take, so if we get her microphone on, please. Thanks. Um, well, it was 45 companies, and about half of them are actually African companies. Um, I think you raise a really good point, a really important point, and actually being part of the G8 event, and this was President Obama was actually at this event. Um, I think the, U, the State Department and Secretary Clinton, they all see um, really improving productivity in parts of the world important to everyone's national security, the U.S.'s and, and, and countries overseas everywhere in Africa. Um, so I think what's going on here is there's an opportunity for governments, African governments, who really are interested in transforming agriculture in their countries to um, step up, and many of them have. They have their cut-up plans you may be familiar with, their own agricultural plans for how they want to transform agriculture in their companies. And they are basically saying we're willing to take on certain kinds of policy reforms, um, including transparency reforms in terms of how they're going to conduct their business and things, and some politi political type reforms um, that they realize are going to be important to enable investment by the private sector, but I think also by the donor community, um, by other governments who are really interested in trying to see more productivity in Africa. So, um, I think that's as much as I can say about it. I think it's a very important point in a sensitive situation. I'm just really excited to see um, this kind of focus on how important it is to be improving agriculture there and the real importance of the public and the private sectors 
asking themselves, what role do I play, and how do I maybe have to do things a little differently than I have in order to make, to make things work? It's a great question, if I could just add quickly um, sort of a macro viewpoint. I don't believe that institutions outside Africa can impose the kind of environment that you describe. It has to come from within Africa. Institutions outside Africa can perhaps help shape the environment with the right kind of information, but it really has to come from within Africa, the people of Africa, and of course, we believe very fundamentally that food security and water security will lead to uh, better uh, context in order to achieve the goals that you described. So thanks for your question. We're gonna go to this microphone, please. So there were a couple of really interesting um, comments yesterday by Brendan Honeycutt and April Hems about uh, what, they, what they're doing on their farm and how it's changed over the last 20 years. And I, I think one of them, the, the comment by Brendan was that he, uh, it's now a thinking exercise <coughs> rather than a physical exercise and that how much analysis, data, monitoring that they're putting into their farm and just how um, adaptable, flexible they've been through that. Then there was a final question that, that people asked is, where do you go for information? And they uh, referenced the resource conservation districts, NRCS, University of Nebraska, and other sources. And I think th that points out a massive gap and contrast between farmers in the developing world and the, and the developed world. The extension systems in the developing world are the worst now than they've been in 30 years and kind of challenging a little bit that the solutions are coming from the governments versus outside. There was a lot of pressure by those, uh, on those governments in the 90s to reduce the amount that they were investing in agriculture support systems, extension systems, and training. So it seems to me that there's a great opportunity right now with the Global Harvest Initiative and other work that's going on, such as what you mentioned at the G8. So the, the question would be, do you see opportunities and what would they be where corporations like yours um, and your partners could be working and uh, with the international community and with those governments to improve the extension systems so that the farmers have the information uh, so that they, like Brendan Honeycutt, can be making those uh, decisions on their farms. Great, thanks for the question. I'm gonna ask one panelist to respond. You can, okay, John, I'm gonna go to you and I'm gonna try and get to the, we've got five people standing up. I'm gonna try and get to these five before we close the panel, but that'll be all the questions that we're able to take. John. Yeah, I think uh, as you might have seen, these, the government of South Africa has recently approved our acquisition of a South African seed company called Panar. And one of the things that they were concerned about as we were going through the, the legal process of uh, getting that approval done was how could Pioneer help uh, the South African government do that extension service for them or, or work with them to do that. So we made a commitment to work with their university systems uh, to, to do extension-like activities, to set up field days and invite especially the small landholder farmers out to teach them how to maximize their productivity of corn. And you know, for us, it was an easy, uh, it was an easy reconciliation. We said, absolutely, we can do that because we do that today in, in North America. Uh, we have agronomy services that support the extension service that we have here. So th those sort of things are happening and I think it's just about having conversations with the governments as we try to expand our business opportunities in those uh, different regions. 
Great. Thanks very much. I'm going to go back to this microphone. Is that Simi? Hi, I'm Simi Kamal from Pakistan. Huh? Hi. Nice In to Pakistan, see you. there is a small town called Sialkot, and it produces all the world's best soccer balls. But a Pakistani kid cannot buy that soccer ball. The only way to buy it is to buy it from Nike or Reebok at a hundred times or more the price. So what we're really talking about here is not really investment or technology. I think it's much more about patenting and pricing. So let's put the focus where it's needed. Now, I know that the Green Revolution happened because of hybrid seas. We all accept that. But al along with those hybrid seas comes a whole paraphernalia, which means the kinds of inputs you have to put in, the urea you need, the pesticides, more water, all of that. So there are a number of problems associated with this. And the cost that is there, we have to keep that in mind. Now, if you look at small farmers across the world, which are used to multi-cropping, they have had this whole uh, um, uh, traditional wisdom through which they have been producing all those years. Now, we can say, yes, that traditional wisdom does not hold true now when the world is faced with 9 billion people. But then the opposite is not, necessary, not necessarily patenting of seeds either. So we have to find some, some way in the middle. And in these small farms, we, we are not really looking for really great technology because a lot of people have their livelihoods associated with these farms. They need handheld implements. They're not going to have more than one acre of farms or two acre of farms in the foreseeable future. And you know, maybe they need different technologies and they need, you know, patenting has, has caused a lot of havoc in our part of the world. And so, you know, there are certain questions that uh, have to be answered by the big seed companies. And we must accept that a lot of this is about, about power, not necessarily about uh, simply technology. So I'd like that to be addressed here. Thank you. Okay. I'm not sure what the question is exactly. Maybe the question is to, do you want to address the intellectual property rights question again, or how do you? Okay, John, go mm -hmm. ahead, and then we'll, we'll, we'll move on. So thank you for your comments. I appreciate uh, your opinions. I, I differ in opinion, but that's okay. I, th I think what we really want to do is offer growers options, including the small landholders of the world. <clears throat> in order to do that, we need a reasonable set of intellectual property protection laws. Uh, but we do have a number of instances where we've been able to take that technology and provide the other inputs that you mentioned in order to demonstrate side by side with the traditional methods what the other system can bring. And it's obviously a difficult transition because it's changed and it requires a lot more investment than these farmers have traditionally had access to in terms of, of dollars. So you have to provide the entire system in order to, to make it work and to make the comparison. But we do have examples. We had a great example in Malawi. We, worked with a program to provide the seed, and we also got them access to fertilization and, and showed them how they could produce much more grain than they had in the past. This was, again, this was corn. Um, the, what was really interesting, at the end of the season, this, this, one of the Malawi farmers who had gone on the program was absolutely convinced of the power of the new technology with all those inputs. And he spent like a month's worth of his of income to get on a bus and take a handful of the ears of corn that he had produced under that system, actually brought it to the Pioneer office to show and thank us for bringing that opportunity to them. So again, we're not trying to force anything on anybody. Uh, what we're really trying to do is provide options. 
So I think the key point that they're making is the ability to have those options, the farmer choice. Thanks again for the, the very important points. Okay, we'll go to this microphone, please. Good morning, uh, Ron Harbin with the Conservation Agricultural Systems Institute, a project of the University of California at Davis. Um, our vision is to achieve resource conserving and economically viable conservation ag systems in California. And by and large, we've been able to do that in, in many instances. However, our frustration is that we're finding difficulty getting those systems adopted. Uh, We've uh, looked at adoption surveys and trying to figure out why farmers aren't adopting these uh, economical and, and environmentally sustainable uh, systems. I'm wondering what frustrations have been uh, found internationally and what's being done about that particular aspect of conservation. Natalie, do you want to address maybe at least a piece of that? So. Um, one thing I did want to mention, because I think it's a really good point about even here in the U.S., the use of these systems. Not too far from here in Gothenburg, Nebraska, we have a water utilization learning center where we have about 80 different demonstration plots of systems-based agriculture for different kinds of uh, inputs and, and management practices. And we really try to utilize that as a training opportunity for, for folks. So there were about 11,000 visitors from 25 countries last year that came and got to see all these different demo plots and ask the kinds of questions and see these side-by-sides and, and hopefully get more um, understanding of what that systems approach can be. I mean, we're still trying to learn all of that ourselves. But I think that my experience in developing countries is that Farmers need to see it for themselves, usually, before they can really feel um, convinced. And then when they do, they're often the most vocal asking for that system. You know, but they, again, they need to have a lot of different pieces in place in order to um, access all the things they need, the information, the inputs, and everything else as part of that. I agree, and I would also say that's true in the developed world. That's the way it worked in my hometown. We'll go to this microphone. Hi, I'm Sean, I'm a student at UNL. Uh, the importance of both public and private sectors was clear from the discussion. My question is, how much we can differentiate the public sector from the private sector when private uh, sector players can have so much influence on the public policy? Thank you. Okay, who wants to take that one? The issue of uh, private sector influence on, on public policy. I guess your concern may be that somehow you think that there's a lack of diversity in voice. Is that the issue? It's more about the influence and the power that they can have a louder voice sometimes. And since it is a, it's getting a business okay. model, a profit-based okay. uh, policy, then right. where can we draw the lines? Okay, John's going to go Thomas. ahead and take that. Yeah. You know we. We do engage in policy discussions in Washington to try to help the United States. Uh, one of the things that's really fascinating, though, is that if you go to Washington and you talk about the benefit of a policy for a company like Pioneer or Monsanto, they don't listen very hard. Uh, but if you go and you talk about a policy change that will help our customers, they listen a lot. And the reason is because each of you has a vote at least in our country, each of you has a vote. Uh, whereas a corporation doesn't have a vote. 
for who runs for president next time. So I, I think, you know, we, we, when we try to go and, and do policy discussions, we try to go on behalf of the, of the customers that we're supporting. And I think we can work together between public and private sectors to develop joint policy positions and then uh, utilize uh, a joint approach to make policy changes occur on a more efficient basis. I think it's a very important issue. Uh, from the perspective of the Gates Foundation, one of the things that we think is important to always remember is that poor people typically don't have a voice or a significant voice. And that's one of the roles that I think philanthropy can play. We view ourselves as really needing to understand issues like vaccine equity. Why is it that uh, kids in the developed world, our kids, the rich kids, get vaccines and kids in the poor world don't? And that's what we try and then bring a voice to in order to change that. So I think good philanthropy can be a nice complement to, to the private sector in this case. I'm going to go to this microphone, this one, and then we're going to wrap. Please. Thank you. My name is Matepo Kumbani from South Africa, standing on a free flowing movement, which is a social movement, water for food movement. And I think. With me, I would associate my, my, the struggles that we are engaged in with Water for Food, but here, Water for Food means everything. I want to say Water for Food in security. Why? Because where I come from, rural areas have been living a life of crisis management for over 50 years. With dislocation and disorientations, our children have grown up in a situation which was crisis management, with lack of focus, lack of vision, lack of understanding. Everything was disintegrated. The movement that we have spearheaded is trying to get tools together for the resocialization of the youth, for rebuilding the family as an institution. And therefore, we are, we are applying food as, as a therapy. Food security becomes a therapy, it's a tool. And we are saying food security is a right and it shall not belong in the box of business. It is a right that has got to get people to a second stage where they realized development can happen. We come from a turmoil background in Africa, conflict, disease, and famine are daily experiences. And therefore, we haven't got a, a window to shed our tears, we haven't got a window to wipe our tears. Therefore, we have to supply ourselves with a safety net. I'm Great. asking questions. How are you going to meet this? We are mobilizing, we are ready, and I'm telling you, we are there. If you want to hold your hands, don't only talk about government, talk about civil society organization as well. Thank right. you. A very important point, the, the emphasis on civil society organizations, giving a voice to the people, putting an emphasis on food security. I think from the perspective of these panelists, what they think about 
is the role that they can play. And I do think it has to be a cross-sector collaboration and civil society organizations are very important. Let's go to the last question here. And then I'm gonna ask the panelists to go through your, your final comments, please. Yeah, my name is Gary Linney. I'm a professor of agricultural economics at School of Natural Resources here at UNL. And several of you, a couple of you at least, have mentioned the systems approach. And I've kind of, I have a question for you along that line. It seems to me there's two different ways to think about the food system. One of them is kind of the way we've been doing it, the idea that the ecosystem itself is a place to go get resources and a place for the wastes of the agricultural food system. That's kind of the way we've been doing it, it seems to me. And, and another new concept that's kind of out, not so new in some ways, but it's the other, other frame, it seems to me, is the idea that the food system is embedded within the larger ecological system. And that leads to industrial ecology kinds of ways of organizing production, closed loop production systems, things like that. I'm wondering, what, what's your vision for the future? I mean, what, where do you see we should be going here? Is it some mix of these, or which, which of these models is going to work the best for us by 2050? Any of the panelists want to take that on? Take uh, it from, Claudia, a, go from ahead. an animal perspective. Um, we, we promote the local production to secure uh, local consumption. So whenever the farms, small farms, medium farm, or integrated farms can be close to the markets or the cities where it's needed, uh, we secure and help with technology to ensure that it happens in there. However, when you look at some specific geographies and countries, they will never be able to catch up with the speed that is required to feed their people, uh, with, even with technology implemented in the systems down uh, correctly. So um, we work to secure access. So if, if a specific country needs to be sure that they have protein, then that protein needs to be able to move. And we are very aware of the implications of moving protein from the US into another country. But it has to happen because not all countries will have the opportunity to produce with the speed that they require so the curve cannot be as fast to secure food for other people. So both have to be maintained and secure to the, to the level where governments allow, of course. Great. Thanks very much. I know we're a couple minutes over and people want to get to the break. But I also know the panelists wanted to share one final thought, if you could keep that to 15 or 30 seconds or so. John? Yeah, just again, thank you very much for having us here to talk to you about these issues. And I think, again, it's a great forum to bring a lot of different perspectives together because this is a significant challenge that's going to require a lot of us to work together in order to resolve the issues that we have and to continue keeping the world fed. Great. Thank you. Claudia? You to leave today uh, not thinking that 2050 is far away. 2050 is actually now, is what we do today. So the sense of urgency on being sure that we're doing the right things uh, for the right people. Um, innovation is important. It has to continue working across the food chain. And choice is key. We should allow mothers and families to make the decisions that they have to make to feed their, uh, their children. Make it personal. Uh, I bet you there's someone close to you that needs help, that, don't, that doesn't know or don't know where to get food. Help them find the food and uh, secure that for a child. I bet you there's uh, some people here in Lincoln, Nebraska, that might need that help. 
make it personal, make, uh, make a change for yourselves too. Great, Thank strong you. sense of urgency, I really agree. Graham, please. Yes, uh, just in closing, uh, again, I, I'd just like to say thank you for this opportunity. Uh, really enjoyed it. I'll be here today and tomorrow in case uh, anyone would like to speak offline. Um, I, I'd like to leave you with um, the fact that a lot of the solutions that have been discussed have benefit, economic benefit to the growers and everyone up from the grower in the system. So it's good to have altruistic endeavors and want to do good, but at the end of the day, it needs to be economically viable and sustainable for any of these, smallholder all the way up to large commercial to work. And I think you'll find a lot of the solutions that are gonna come on the market speak to that end. Um, in so doing, um, water use efficiency is going to be a key component of our lives moving forward. And I'd invite you to participate in this discussion proactively, because if you don't, somebody is going to speak for you. Um, so, <clears throat> in closing, um, thank you, and um, hopefully we can speak uh, at the break. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Graham. Uh, uh, real quickly, um, I have a six-year-old and a 20-month-old. I worry a lot about the world that they're going to be living in, in terms of the kind of challenges we're going to be facing. And I think other panelists touched on, I think, a lot of what's really going to be important that I think this conference helps to instill, that sense of inclusive thinking that it, we really need to break down the barriers so we're at least trying to listen to each other and, and overcome our differences to solve common, solutions, common visions we have for solutions, that sense of urgency. And, and last, I'd say a sense of optimism. Even though there's really big challenges here, um, there's a lot we can do if we're working together. And I think healthy skepticism is great. Cynicism, we don't have a lot of room for that, I think, for, for the kinds of things that we need to do. As an institution here that's really training the next generation of great leaders and minds, um, I'm grateful that you're having this conference and that your students are, are being part of the conversation that's going on in this important topic. So thanks for the opportunity. Very good point. One of the things we talked about was the importance of attracting great talent, young talent into this because of the issues of the, the future. Well, I know on behalf of the panelists and myself, we want to thank the University of Nebraska, the Doherty Water for Food Institute, and the Global Harvest Initiative for giving us this opportunity. I hope what you take away from this is the important work that we can do together, collectively, across sectors, private sector, public sector, civil society organizations, catalytic philanthropy, in order to take on these big challenges. We do hope you come away with a sense of optimism that the glass is actually half full and we have the opportunity to work together. So thank you all very much for this opportunity. We appreciate it. Great.